From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Louise Hawkley. She's a senior research scientist at NORC, a research institution at the University of Chicago. Dr. Hawkley studies the impact of loneliness and social isolation on health and well-being, especially for older adults. I want to have her on because, let's face it, it's been a lonely year, and loneliness was already widespread in our society. Few people know more about it than Dr. Hawkley. How loneliness comes on, how it perpetuates itself, and which interventions are actually proven to help chronically lonely people. So whether you're lonely or know somebody who struggles to connect, I think you'll find something useful in here. Dr. Hockley, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So I also want to start out with sort of an odd question because loneliness is such a common feeling. Everybody knows what it feels like to feel lonely. And yet you as somebody who studies it formally, you have a special understanding of loneliness, a more specific one. And so let's start at the very beginning. What to you, Dr. Hockley, is loneliness? Yes. Well, the first thing is what it is not. It is not being alone. And that is a common first misperception that being isolated like we have been during the pandemic means that we're necessarily lonely. It certainly increases the risk of feeling lonely, but it is not synonymous. So what is loneliness? Definitionally, we can say it's a mismatch between what we expect or want from the relationships we have and what we're actually getting from those relationships. Sometimes that's purely quantity, like I need to have more people and I can't find more people. Or more typically, it's I have people, but they're not satisfying me. It's like eating a meal of celery or something. You know, It's just not cutting the mustard. So it, quality of the relationship matters a lot. Reading about loneliness, I've come to see it as you and, and Dr. Cassiopo and others have, have called it a signal. What is it a signal of? Like, why loneliness? What is what is the purpose of loneliness? Right. Yeah, we think of loneliness as equivalent to a hunger signal. So it's signaling that we need to reach out and eat socially whatever it is that we need. It's a biological signal, and it's instantiated. I mean, it's it's part of who we are. It's It's a motivational impulse in our brain that's very adaptive. This is how we survive as humans, is we survive best with others. What is the kind of the working number that's in your head for how many people struggle with loneliness in America? Well, my figures are most current regarding older adults. And typically the figures range from about 20 to 40 percent. In the National Social Life, Health, and Aging Project, which is a nationally representative sample of older adults that we've been chronicling since 2005, I think the most recent estimate for people who are feeling lonely, and I don't mean even chronically lonely, but at a given point in time, is about 25%. Younger adults, it looks to be higher. I have some uh, questions about the kinds of samples that have been used uh, to make these estimates, but I, I can pretty safely state that they do have higher rates of loneliness, a greater proportion. Younger people, we're talking approximately. Younger, we're talking... Uh, what I think now is called emerging adulthood, like 18, up as long, as old as 30 or 35. Loneliness is bad for our health. It's bad for our mental health and it's bad for our body. Mm. How so? Break that down for us. Yeah. When we talk about loneliness being bad for us, we have to think about it in in a temporal way too. Like transient loneliness 
not uncommon, not necessarily bad. That's the signal we're talking about. It's when you can't get out of the loop, you know, when that signal isn't mm, reaching you or you're, or, yeah, or you're not able to act on it, whatever the reason may be. That's when you start seeing effects. At least that's the way we've been um, viewing the data we have to date. Um, so the effects go, you know, if you're talking about physical health, start at the top and go on down. People who are chronically lonely are more at risk for dementia, for various types of cognitive decline. Um, uh, let's see what's next. Cardiovascular systems. So these are the people who are more likely to develop hypertension, cardiovascular disease, whether that's heart failure, stroke, angina, you know, various types of cardiovascular diseases. If you go down a little further, you go to the hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical axis, big name. It's just the, the system that manages, controls the body's stress response. And you see some dysregulation of people's control of that stress response. Um, related to that, we also see that People who are lonely, chronically lonely in particular, are more likely to show um, great increase in activation of pro-inflammatory genes, those that promote inflammation in the body, and a deregulation, or I should say deactivation, of those genes that stall inflammation. Inflammation is good in the sense that it's normal and you need it for, let's say, recovering from poison ivy. <laughs> In the body, it wreaks a whole different set of problems that contribute to a lot of the chronic diseases of aging. Is it useful to think of it in evolutionary terms? Like you're separated from the group and you have to be on guard and that sort of thing? Right. Yeah, we think of loneliness, uh, the framework around which we think of loneliness is very much an evolutionary framework. If you think of loneliness as a signal, like hunger, that it has a biological motivation, you have to ask, why is it there? Because it feels so terrible. But it is, like hunger. Hunger doesn't feel good, but the point is, it does the job. It gets you to eat. And so evolutionarily, we want people to be capable of feeling loneliness, lonely because that's what ensures that they will bind to a group, to other people, to their children, to their spouse, whatever level you're talking about. At the same time, we don't want everybody to stick so close to each other that nobody gets out and sees what's happening on the other side of the track. You know, we, we need explorers. We need people who can take a bit more pain <laughs> of separation and get out and talk to other people. Maybe collaborate with them, cooperate with them. This is how the big things in our civilization have happened. And we've learned to cooperate, to work together. Well, this sort of gets to what to me was a core insight on loneliness, which is the cycle of loneliness, how loneliness begets loneliness, how this signal, this alarm bell starts ringing. And if the loneliness is transient, the person is able to respond and feed the social hunger. But that doesn't always work. Right. So the cycle is a feedback loop, essentially. So when people feel lonely, and again, you can take this back to evolutionary terms, it's this feeling that nobody's got my back. I'm on my own. That's a scary feeling. And it makes you defensive. You know, you got to protect against assaults. 
And in the course of protecting yourself from potential hurt, damage, you may become more cautious in your interactions with others. You may put up barriers. And even if you have an interaction with other people, you may not be as forthright as as you might be otherwise. That kind of behavior begets that kind of behavior. People sense whether they're being cut off in some sense if, if the person isn't uh, being forthright with them. And that makes them behave in perhaps a fashion that is less than desirable from the lonely person's perspective. They're not as friendly because they're trying to case the situation too. And you know, what's going on here? What can I say? What can't I say? And by doing that, the lonely person essentially has affirmation, you know, you know, this is this is not a safe place. These people aren't doing for me what I thought they would. They're in fact kind of barricading themselves behind some kind of wall. And along with that come other emotions that are even contagious. I mean, they, you can feel pretty miserable and people around you may seem to look less happy than than they are when they're interacting with others. So then that makes you feel even more down. And the cognitive interpretations of all that, you know, it's me, it's all about me, nobody likes me. Or it might go the other way and say, I'm being victimized, I don't know what's going on. But at any rate, it does create a cycle of negative interactions that seem to become more negative. And as that builds up, it just confirms this notion that nobody likes me or you know, nobody is what I need them to be, and it makes the loneliness stick around or get worse. Yeah, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's both an internal and an external thing. The word contagion, wow, mm. loneliness mm-hmm. is a contagion, mm-hmm. that if you are on high alert to threat, if you start to see the world as a dangerous place, if you start to interpret people's behaviors as being about you or somehow hostile to you when they might be totally neutral or not right. about you at all. Right. And you start to peeve in a certain way and then people respond to you in a certain way. Yeah. They don't they're less likely to want to be around that that suspicious defensive person. Is that right? Well, yeah, and that plays right into interventions. <laughs> <laughs> you ready to go there? <laughs> I, I'm ready to go there if you're ready to go there. Okay. Right, that this fear um or this belief that there is something to fear out there um, and that it's, you know, something about me or maybe it's uh, I'm being victimized. That is itself a problem that lends itself well to social cognitive intervention. So it's really ultimately in those cases training to reinterpret your surroundings because you get into cycles of negative thinking too, especially about your social world. And this thinking backfires. I mean, it doesn't, it's not working for you. It's just making things worse. So it's training to think of another reason why the person at the grocery store checkout didn't respond to your hello greeting. It's not you. Maybe she had a bad day. Maybe she just got reamed out by her boss. Maybe she had a car accident before she came in. There's so many other interpretations you can give to others' behavior rather than think that they've got it in for you or that there's something about you. So retraining on that front seems to do well in terms of getting people out of those 
damaging loops of mm. loneliness. You're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Very much like that, It's but it's very specific to social aspects of people's lives. I see. And I should mention that this is a subject you've studied, right? You've studied interventions. Yeah. Not that I'm an interventionist, but we have compared different types of interventions that have been attempted over the years. And that particular type of intervention um, in a study that we reported back about 10 years ago was the one that seemed to have the biggest effect. Um, Other types of interventions were things like social contact, you know, people who assume that the problem with loneliness is you don't have people to talk to. Therefore, I will give you people to talk to and we'll find you a group or we'll find you some people to talk to on the phone and all will be well. Didn't work so well? Not so much. It's true for some people, but, you know, getting back at the root of what loneliness is, it's not just contact, it's quality of interaction or quality of relationship. And if you're thrown together in a room with a bunch of other lonely people who you've never met before, you know, here you have all kinds of things working against you. You have loneliness contagion just magnified. You have no choice, which is a big part of loneliness, is this sense that you don't have control, that it's happening to you and not that you can change anything. So, yeah, it's not a formula for a good intervention. Now, of course, if you don't have any contacts at all, which was a problem and an issue during during the pandemic, during the worst of the pandemic, especially in senior living facilities where people were essentially locked in their rooms, they could perhaps have virtual contact, but they had no control over any other contact they had. And that itself is lonely making, never mind the fact that they were isolated. What might a I mean, you mentioned that the intervention for loneliness can be very specific. What what might it consist of? What are some of the specific kind of thought patterns that a therapist would try to change? I don't know that I would talk about the therapist angle. That's not my domain. But if you look at just types of interventions more generally, if somebody is feeling lonely because they are indeed isolated, let's say they're disabled, they can't leave the house, and their family lives on the other side of the country. And if they talk to them, it's maybe every two weeks or something like that. And in between, there's nothing meaningful in their social exchanges. All right, there you have what I would argue is a need for something as better than nothing. And in fact, it is. In fact, Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly is a, an international program, but they have a number of chapters across the U.S. Their mission is to reduce loneliness and social isolation, and their target population meets those criteria of having very infrequent, meaningful interactions. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I think for younger adults... And this is where I, there isn't a lot of data on this yet, but I would venture to say that there are a number of inroads that one could make, both behaviorally and cognitively. Um, This is where we could get into social media use. It's a funny thing, you know, social media is heavily used by people who are very social, have a lot of activity, and it's heavily used by those who don't have a lot of social activity, but it's used very differently. And it's understanding how people are using it. And maybe there's something to be learned here from the older generation in the sense that the benefit of social media use is 
to supplement what you've already got, not to replace. So let's say you have really close friends and family members that have dissipated all, you know, they're all across the country. Well, having some access to them via social media is great. But to find a meaningful connection on social media is really a hit or miss thing. And oftentimes it's a big miss because social media you might be used in a way that essentially highlights how lonely you are. You know, this social comparison, what's everybody else doing? And here's me. So yeah, that's one inroad, I would say, for tackling it. What does this mean for the future of the younger generations who were born, like really born onto screens and born into social media um, and who've known no other world? Are you worried about their future? I tend not to get worried, (laughs) but I do think there's going to be a payoff of some kind. We have a granddaughter who was born into the pandemic. So we've gotten to know her through the screen and she too. I mean, she is amazingly good at recognizing that those things on the screen are actually people she knows. That's great for us and for her, I think, to some extent. But I think there will be, I want to say it'll get worse before it gets better, but I say that within generation as well as across generation, because I'm optimistic that our social drive, that signal to connect, will at some point kick in. We will recognize that this isn't doing it for me. Something's not right here. Maybe it'll take till people have their own kids or even after that, maybe they see their own kids going down the sinkhole of media and realize, oh, that's the problem that I've been having, you know. I don't know. But I feel like there will be um, the ultimate trumping of the human um, motivation to have this interpersonal, in-person contact that involves sight, smell, hearing, touch, all of those things that really bind us to each other. Yeah, I mean, to use the food metaphor, right? It's the distinction between junk food and healthy food. And I think people have come to appreciate that distinction. Yeah, and I'm hoping that that appreciation will go on in future generations. You touched on the pandemic a moment ago. It would seem to me to be the world's best and biggest loneliness experiment possible. What have you learned from about loneliness from the pandemic? I think the biggest thing that I come away with is what a sea change there has been in society's appreciation for, understanding of, willingness to talk about loneliness. This is not something that typically was given the time of day. Yes, it was in broad strokes. Yeah, we have this epidemic of loneliness and loneliness. But nobody really knew what's loneliness. I mean, it's something that old people get because they're alone all the time. Nah, that's not what we're talking about. So the fact that people have, to varying degrees, been isolated or made themselves isolated has, I think, generated a new appreciation for how much we need those people around us, those people in our network. And I think an appreciation that this is a universal experience and that we all must learn from each other, but the fact that it's universal gives us a grounding for talking about it in a way that is 
appreciated by all parties. We know what we mean. We all appreciate how much how important it is. If we can carry that forward, I think we have something very promising to look forward to. But we have to be intentional about it. It just it won't just happen. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. Your late colleague, Dr. John Cassiopo, saw in the prevalence of loneliness in our society an indictment of our society. Um, he wrote, Western societies have demoted human gregariousness from a necessity to an incidental. Do you feel that way? Yes, and increasingly so in the current climate. I just feel like we're putting a lot of that, that gregariousness, that necessity on the chopping block to maintain the tribes that we have artificially created around ourselves that separate us from other people rather than those that bind us to other people. Tribes are good, but they need not be exclusive. And it's crossing that boundary, being willing to talk to the other tribe, you know, seeing commonalities. And it doesn't mean that those people have to become our closest buddies. This is where the, the notion of weak ties comes in. Just being able to be friendly and civil in greeting somebody who you know has a very different political alignment than you do, but you can sincerely wish them well or tell them about the movie you saw the other day or whatever it might be, new, new restaurant in town. It's something that opens the door to connection. It's so interesting that your mind went to polarization. Because I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, economics and family structures and, you know, increasing numbers of Americans living alone. The, the way that we treat relocation, you know, in our economy. Oh, you just move. I will just move. It'll be fine. We'll just move. Like, no problem. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. But I think of quality of relationship and what it takes to feel connected. Maybe the better, better way to think about this is the way I think about loneliness, which is, is it's a multifaceted concept. So when we look at um, dimensions of loneliness, we see that there is something we call an intimate level, which basically corresponds to how connected you feel to a close other, typically a spouse. But it's this, this basically a sense of self that is so comfortably embodied in and with another person that it becomes like a bigger self. That's, that's an intimate connectedness. There's a relational connectedness that is more tied to close confidants, just having people you can share things with, talk about, about important stuff. But there's also a third layer that I, I don't think gets enough attention, and it's the collective sense of connectedness or loneliness. Do you feel like you belong? Where? To a group that has meaning to you, to society. I mean, you can think of people who are quite peripheralized from society, whether it's because of um, racial ethnic uh, status or, or LGBT or maybe it's age, whatever it might be, you can be made to feel like you belong or you can be made to feel like you do not belong. That's lonely making. 
So when I think of polarization, I think that's what we're doing. We're hitting that collective aspect and excluding people from this larger social sphere in which we, which we all inhabit. Mm, I like that. There's something fundamentally important to the signal being sent that, that you belong in the biggest sense. Yes. Well, we did touch on emerging from loneliness. With the, we talked a little bit about the interventions. I'm wondering, as people continue to emerge from COVID isolation, what might they do, especially the introverts, to do that in the right way? Like, how can they begin to dip their toes back into a more, quote-unquote, normal social life? That's an interesting question, and I think it doesn't hold only for introverts. I know many people who, even though it's only been a year plus, it's been a year plus, and the idea of, of resuming normal, what does that mean? And I think it's a time to be thoughtful about how one does this, and this is for everybody, in that we took for granted the social contacts we had, the relationships we had, and we really didn't appreciate how important that larger immersion in that larger social context matters. This is our chance to be deliberate. Maybe what we did before wasn't all good. Maybe we spent too much time not nurturing good relationships. Maybe we spent it on frivolities, <laughs> frivolous social stuff. <laughs> but if we do take a little more time to think about it, we, we could hopefully be more deliberate about choosing choosing to connect, choosing to connect across all levels with people close to us, with groups, with our society, not only for our own benefit, but including others. Like, how do we connect others to this social sphere we inhabit? I'm interested in what you would say to somebody who's listening to this who is lonely or is close to a lonely person. You know, sort of practical steps, what can a person do? Like, where do you begin to, to break that cycle of loneliness? Yeah, I say that in a rather resigned tone of voice because I know this can be very difficult, um, especially in older adults. I hear this a lot from the children of older adults who wish for and try to direct their parent or aunt or grandparent to some kind of social venue. And the person just obstinately refuses, don't want to do that, don't want to go there partly because I think there is this resignation. This is who I am now. Don't make me do this new thing. I don't want to go there. But in general, I think this is a time for empathy. You know, <laughs> I think if there are opportunities to do intergenerational things, I've seen some interesting examples, even among people with cognitive impairment, where the child and the cognitively impaired older adult will go to a dance class together it's fun. It gets the person out. I mean, it doesn't have to be in those kinds of settings. It can be volunteering. And there's a lot that has to be done to, to be careful to match people with their volunteering opportunity. Again, choice plays a big role here. But if you can find or at least help an older adult or a friend or a partner, find a possible connecting point through a volunteering um, opportunity, I think that's a, a safe way to go because if they're in a place where their skills 
meet that group's needs, they won't get rejected. They'll be loved. <laughs> so it's, it's a, I think, a profitable direction to go. Why is that such a good one? I've heard volunteering mentioned before. Well, part of it is that it gets you out of yourself. You're out there for other people. And maybe that can be part of the reason why older adults um, don't suffer as much from loneliness. They're not as worried about themselves as they are about their children and grandchildren. What can we do to make them feel good about where they are in life and to connect them? So volunteering, it's this nurturing aspect of the stages of life. Um, so yeah, I think volunteering is much the same. You're doing for others. That's so interesting. It's always, I've encountered this before, but it, it never ceases to amaze me that there's something about giving that begins to loosen, to thaw all this frozenness inside. The thing that also comes to mind is that giving generates giving. And I don't mean from the other person. The funny thing about giving is the act of giving to someone else kind of makes you feel obliged to give them more, right? So you continue to give. And that attitude, it's a pay it, play it forward kind of thing. It does come back, but it breeds its own um, cycle of giving, of positivity. I think that's a great place to, to kind of wrap it up because we've gone from a negative cycle to a positive one, this giving cycle, how giving begets Gee, giving. Aren't we good? <laughs> this has been a pleasure, Louise. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure, too. Dr. Louise Hawkley is a senior research scientist at NORC at the University of Chicago. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Thanks. For more resilience tips, including transcripts and photos, visit our website, www.mountsinai.org slash RTR, as in Road to Resilience. The podcast is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by me, John Earl, Nikki Cheatham, Emma Stoneham, and our gregarious executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us, thanks for listening, and take care out there.